Let's open the Word of God back to John chapter 4 and take up five verses there, verses 20 through 24. Again, I would highly recommend that you read 2 Kings 17 about the origin and religion of the Samaritans and that you also read Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 through 20. I would sorely love to go over Isaiah 44, 9 through 20 with you because it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible in the middle of some of the best chapters in the Bible. Right. The 40s, yep. 41 through 49 of Isaiah are some of the best chapters in the Bible because they lift up the Lord Jehovah our God and he makes fun of all other gods. Right. He makes fun of them. And he makes fun of idolatry in Isaiah 44, 9 through 20 in, in very good fashion. About how men plant trees and they grow by rain coming down and they cut a tree down and they use a third of it to warm themselves. And the Bible actually has the words of what a man would say if he was holding his hands to a fire. Ah, ah, I have seen the fire. And then he uses a third of this log to bake his food. He, he roasts roast. It actually tells us. And, and so he bakes his bread. And then he's got a third of the tree left over. And he says, what am I going to... I'll make a God. I'll make a God. I'll fall down to it. I'll worship it. And I'll, I'll talk to it. I'll talk to the leftover third of a tree and ask it to deliver me. And then it goes on to say, he can't see, he can't think, he doesn't consider, he doesn't know that it's absolute stupidity. He has a lie in his right hand and he can't let go of it. And if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd be there right now. Based on numbers, if we were Christians, we would have a rosary in our hand. And we would not be able to let that piece of blasphemous junk go in which ten prayers are made to Mary as the mother of God, and only one prayer to our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Unbelievable. That passage is, that's the God of heaven speaking. That's the God of heaven boasting of himself as the only true and living God, and the rest being the imaginations of men. The 40s in the book of Isaiah are some of the best chapters in the Bible if you like God speaking of himself and ridiculing men and their hallucinations and imaginations and ridiculing idolatry and false religions. Now, let me say this. I respect, I respect the idolater of Isaiah 44 more than the educated idiots of today. Because the educated idiots of today start with circular reasoning from their little pea brains. And they reason out from their depraved own hearts and imaginations. They haven't proven evolution at all by science. To prove anything by science, you learn in the, in the sixth, by the sixth grade that it's got to be observable. You've got to be able to witness it happening, and you've got to be able to test your hypotheses by experiment and make it happen, which they have never done nor ever come close to. They want to reason from zero, and they end up there reasoning from zero because they reason from their own minds. At least the idolater said, I need a God. Right. 
I need someone greater than me in order to deliver me. Even though he's foolishly, ridiculously wrong in taking a third of a leftover tree and curving it up a little bit to look like a man, and then he falls down and worships it, that's terrible. But it's better than the stuff that we have to put up with today by men like Stephen Hawking, who slobbers all over himself all the time, and that's the most intelligent thing he's ever done. He's never added a modicum of wisdom to this race. He denies the existence of any God. And if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd be right there with him. Sitting at the foot of his wheelchair, asking for something to come from his moaning tube. We've got John chapter 4. And here's what it reads like in verses 20 through 24. And these verses were very precious to many of us in days gone by when the Lord told us, I don't accept any worship. You've got to worship me the way I want to be worshipped. And it changed our lives. And we're thankful for these five verses. John chapter 4, the woman of Samaria, the woman of Sychar, is still at the well with the Lord Jesus Christ. And she has just said in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She's get, now that she knows that he may be a representative of the Jews' religion, she's going to say a little bit about her religion. And then Jesus is going to answer her about her religion and about the Jews' religion in five verses. And it's wonderful. He's going to run right over both of them, the Samaritan religion and the Jews' religion, to come up with our religion, the religion of the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. Let's start at verse 19 so we have the flow. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Thank you, blessed God, for these wonderful verses. She starts out by saying, our fathers. She isn't referring to fathers of her and Jesus. She's referring to the fathers of her nation, her culture, and her religion. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. It's pitiful when you make family tradition the criterion for your religion. Family tradition is 99% dangerous and 1% a blessing. When we look through the world, we understand that big Buddhists generally beget little Buddhists. Big Muslims beget little Muslims. Big Hindus beget little Hindus. Most men's religion on planet Earth is because of their mommy and daddy had a religion before they were born. 
And grandpa and grandpa, grandma had a religion before they were born, and they end up in the same religion. But that's not a good reason to choose a religion because mommy and daddy did it. Right. We want a religion that is based on the revelation of God. How does God reveal himself? We believe that God has revealed himself. The creator of heaven and earth has revealed himself in the Bible. And there's a long series on our website, how you can prove that the Bible is God's word. The Bible is a supernatural book. There's a number of ways in which you can approach to show the Bible being a supernatural book with the number one evidence being the hundreds of fulfilled prophecies that are in it that are very specific in nature where the origin of those prophecies is very well known and the fulfillment is, has been documented. Because fulfilled prophecy can only be brought about by a supreme divine being that's got the power to fulfill what he said he would do. And God loves to boast. In Isaiah 44, which I would love to go back to. Did I say that already? Isaiah 44, I cut you off at verse 20, but if you read just a few more verses, after God made fun of worshiping one-third that is left over of a tree... He goes on to say, let me tell you what I can do. And he names Cyrus by name, Cyrus the Persian, Cyrus the Great, 150 years before he was born, and said that this man would overthrow the impregnable city of Babylon. At that time, it was impregnable. And that he would rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of Jerusalem though that city and that temple had not even been destroyed yet for another 80 years. Remember the 70 in captivity in Babylon? That's Isaiah 44. That's our God. That's our glorious God that we worship. Bragging about himself. He says, bring your strong reasons. Bring, Bring your best. I'll tear them to shreds. And he does it by fulfilled prophecy. Because I'm able to declare the beginning from the end and things which have not been yet, I'm able to declare it and tell the details of it. And he describes Cyrus coming from the east. He names him twice. In Isaiah 44, in Isaiah 45, he calls Cyrus his servant. i got to get off Cyrus the Persian. It's an exciting subject. I love telling you about it. I love reminding you about it because I've told you so many times in the past. But it's just one fulfilled prophecy. Just one of the details of how Cyrus and Darius the Mede used their engineers to divert the waters of the Euphrates River. It says it in Isaiah 44 and 45 into the desert and walk through the riverbed of the Euphrates River and take the impregnable city of Babylon in one night. Just one example. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. We want to base our religion on revelation. And the only way we'll ever base it on revelation is if God gives us repentance. So we're back to the two R's. The two R's. Repentance and revelation. I know they're reading, writing, arithmetic, rhetoric, and religion. That's the five R's that ought to be taught in school. But two of them have been thrown away a long time ago. So no one can think and talk and no one knows God. Yes. Reading, writing, arithmetic, rhetoric, and religion. Rhetoric is the ability of persuasive speech. It's a lost art. It's a lost science. It's no longer used or emphasized. I know someone sent me their Greenville Tech class schedule for this next semester this week, and it had 
public speaking on it, and I wrote the person back, and I said, the most important college class you'll take of all of them is public speech. It's okay. I love that happening once in a while. If it didn't happen once in a while, I wouldn't be able to show that maybe, maybe I'm a child of God. (laughs) And I mean that in all due respect. If we don't have little things... Charlie, I'm sorry. (laughs) Don't look at me like that. (laughs) If we don't have little events like that come up, we cannot show the Lord how much we really believe is religion. Do you you understand? I get to use 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, almost every week of my life. 1 Peter 2, 8... I know I'm chasing a rabbit. But I'll tell you, I've got a 10-gauge, and it shoots 4-inch magnums. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20 says that we are supposed to submit ourselves to bosses on the job. And only if the boss on the job is obnoxious can we do something that really shows our religion. If we have a boss on the job that is super nice and kind to us all the time and always follows through and gives us the raises they promise us, How can we show anything to God by being obedient to them and working hard for their department? But when we have an obnoxious boss and we go ahead and work diligently and faithful and show respect to them, we show that something is different about us, and the Bible says that is thankworthy. So, that is ended. I hope it's turned off so I don't have to chase that rabbit again. But these events happen to us in life, and I hope that we all know that. When there's a slow driver in front of you that is texting while driving or something, and you're getting irritated, remember, we believe that God arranged that set of circumstances to see if you truly love him or not, and how you're going to love that neighbor. That is a neighbor. Because in your ordinary course of business, God has brought this texting driver in front of you. And I hope the tone of voice tells you that I have my own challenges with all of these things. But the Lord is good and His Bible is clear. And we have truth before us in the Word of God. And this woman had a lie in her right hand called, Our Fathers Worshipped in This Mountain. And she she couldn't let go of it, but she's about to let go of it. Because she's about to meet the Christ, which is the Messiah, which is the Lord Jesus. The word Christ means the Anointed One of God. Messiah is the same word from the Hebrew. In the the New Testament, it is going to be Christos or Christ. From the Old Testament Messiah, it's God's anointed Son that He sent into this world to save sinners by dying on the cross to pay for their sins because we deserve to die that death, but He died as our substitute. My grandfather was a spiritist and worshipped the devil just two generations ago. I'm glad that now I can say my father... And my fathers worship differently than that. Your father or mother, even if they're saved, is irrelevant to you. That is not how we measure religion. We want to measure religion by God said it. God wrote it. So we believe it because we have this book. And we start out with the fact that the book is an inspired supernatural book. We don't believe on Jesus then believe the Bible because Jesus told us to believe the Bible. We start out with the Bible, and we believe the Bible is God's inspired, superhuman, supernatural book, 
and it tells us about Jesus. And we don't get that out of order. The Bible proves itself to be the Word of God to any honest person that will take a look at it in, in the several dozen ways of proving that the Bible is a supernatural book which has been dealt with in the past. Our, this woman, this woman of the Samaritans that the Jews hated, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews either, she is talking to the Lord Jesus Christ, and she makes an appeal to our fathers worshipped in this mountain, as if tradition, tradition is important. Because she says, our tradition, our way of worshipping is in Mount Gerizim. Your way of worshipping is in Jerusalem. As if you have your tradition, we have our tradition. Let's agree to disagree. Agreeing to disagree is unacceptable. Because the God of heaven doesn't agree to disagree. He wants you to agree that his religion is the only true religion. This passage meant so much to me, coming out of my teenage years, wandering in my mind and my thoughts, oh, to come to the truth that there is truth in the world and God wants to be worshipped by in truth and he will not accept any other worship. Right. Traditional worship is wrong. And I'm not going to repeat in this sermon, because I preached it already this morning, about Mount Gerizim of the uh, Samaritans and the things that took place there in the Samaritans worshiping out of the Pentateuch and believing that they had a superior religion to the Jews, Jesus is going to correct all of that in just a couple of verses. I said it this morning, so there's no reason for me to say it again, and I will finish at the hour, but you're going to, I hope, sit and enjoy and rejoice with me for 30 more minutes, the glory of God in the truth of His Word, and that He is a God that doesn't accept us worship. Do you know they say... There's a hundred different ways to Jesus. There's a hundred different ways to God. Oh, no, there is not. There's only one way. And Jesus, our Lord, this man, this God-man, this Son of God, sitting on the well of Jacob, said, No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. John 14, 6. There is only one way to go to the Creator God of heaven, and that is by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not by Pope Frank. It is not by a priest. It is not by the Mormons in Salt Lake City. It's not by Islam. It's not by the Hindus. It is by the Lord Jesus Christ. He said so. We believe him. It's written down. And there is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is sitting there talking to this woman and they're about to take their exchange to a better level. A deeper level. Look at that 20th verse. This is how men think. Our fathers. You know, I grew up being a Catholic and so I'm a Catholic. A person could say. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say, you've grown up being a Baptist and so that's the way you think. Can't we just love each other? Don't we both love Jesus? No. No. It's not the same Jesus. It's not the same truth. And so the Lord, the Lord Jesus is going to narrow it down. You ha we have to worship the Father in spirit. And I'm going to explain that. And we're going to have to worship Him in truth. Because the Father seeks that kind of worshiper. Worshiper in spirit and in truth. Do all of you remember how important these verses were to us a long time ago? In segregating us from false religion and pulling us out 
in putting us together in this church Amen. by a long process, just like the Lord taking a while with her, a little step at a time. Well, we come to verse 21. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. There is a future change in religion to take place. He uses the future tense. When ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Now Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me. Believe me. Do you believe him right now? Do you believe Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Right. He and his followers have turned the world upside down. The Bible, from beginning to end, tells us about Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees of the Jews, the most conservative and strictest sect of the Jews' religion, search the scriptures. Go ahead. Search the Bible. For in the Bible, you think you have eternal life. You know, they'll wear the Torah. They'll kiss the Torah. Catholics will kiss the Bible. That, that is not how you use a Bible. You use the Bible by opening it up and reading it and obeying it. And Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Right. Jesus said, wherever you read the Bible, you're going to end up reading about me. As early as Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, what our first parents got us into, and that's death. They got us into dying. What our first parents got us into... God told the devil, this woman is going to bear a male, a male seed. He, she's going to have a son, and he is going to bruise your head. He is going to get the victory and overthrow death and take my people to heaven where they shall live forever. That's as early as Genesis chapter 3. And it runs all the way to Revelation 22. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. But I, I have to ask you, do you believe him? I love those women. Believe me, I'm going to tell you something that hardly anyone else in the world knew about right then except the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles didn't know about it yet. They did not see it clearly yet that there was a change in religion coming over the next 40 years from when this happened. Right. This happened in approximately 27 AD, and it happened in from, from 27 or so to 67, from 30 to 70 AD, a 40-year period of time, Religion was changed in the world from the Old Testament where they had a temple, where they had an altar, where they had a priesthood, where they had trumpets, where they had a laver to wash your hand, where they had a candlestick, where they had the little Ark of the Covenant, where they had cherubim with their wings spread out, where they had gold, where they had blue, where they had purple. All that stuff was the Old Testament and it was about to go away right. and, until religion was left with what we have in here. Do you know how much gold we have? None. Do you know that we, we don't have a laver? We don't have a candlestick. We don't have anything. We even ripped our steeple off. Amen. We even got rid of our dry pastor baptistry. We don't have anything in here except some uncomfortable benches for you to sit on where you have to endure sound doctrine, and I hope that it's sound by the grace of God. Do, do you understand? We've stripped it. We have nothing. Look at this beautiful wall. Look at these beautiful hangings. It's totally different 
I hope you understand. I'm trying to make it as plain as possible for even our children. The Old Testament was beautiful. When Solomon built the temple, it was one of the wonders of the world. It was torn to the ground by the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and then Zerubbabel built it again. Herod the Great added to it, and it was again one of the wonders of the world, and it was torn to the ground in 70 AD by the Roman armies under Titus. But it was all, it was visual. It, they had trumpets playing and men singers and women singers and the smells and the aromas of the whole thing because it was external religion and Jesus is about to change that. And during a 40-year period of time, the two covenants ran side by side. The Old Testament temple continued to operate with them killing lambs and goats and oxen and it stunk and blood burning on this altar all day long and smoke going up and animals bleeding and cutting their throats and bleeding them out. That was Old Testament religion. That was the God of the Bible and the religion that he set up because he wanted them to see the bloody nature of making an atonement for sin and though they killed so many animals it never put away a single sin. But the sacrifice of his son on the cross of Calvary outside the city of Jerusalem put away sin forever for those that believe on him. Believe me. I don't want to leave those two little words. Woman, believe me. Do you know that she just got a lesson in eschatology and ecclesiology and soteriology that no one else in the world knew but a woman of Samaria who didn't have a husband because she had had five and the sixth man she was living with wasn't her husband. She got the truth. The Lord Jesus gave it to her. The only person I can think of and the revelation of truth that makes sense to me right now comparable to this is the Lord showing me anything. And the more I think about it, the Lord's showing you anything. Don't, don't you agree? This is a Samaritan woman. She's about to get a revelation of truth Peter, James, and John didn't understand yet. This is early on in their ministry of the apostles with our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe him? He's God's son. He's I am that I am. He's the Lord Jehovah in human flesh on earth. He said in John chapter 8, if you don't believe that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died on the cross of Calvary for the sins of his people? Amen. Believe on him. Believe on him. Lord, give repentance to those that are yours. Amen. Believe me. You know, we could take those little words and we could run off into all the things that Jesus Christ taught about religion and we'd, we'd lose the whole time we have together. We could run off and say that Jesus said that if you lust after a woman in your heart, it's equal to committing adultery with her. Do you believe him? He said, believe me. How about divorce to get to another woman? And you use the divorce laws wrongly to get to another woman? Jesus said it's equal to adultery. Do you believe him? Jesus said, after I'm glorified, the Holy Spirit's going to be given to every man, every believer. It's going to fill him. Do you believe him? Yes, we should believe him in all things. Look at Hebrews 9, and let me show you, if you want to cross-reference, 
for verse 21, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. The cross reference would be Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10. Do you realize what Jesus told the woman of Samaria? The hour is coming in which all that worship taking place in my nation, of my people, where my fathers and my mother dwelt, I'm talking about his fathers legally, do you know that that religion is wrong as well? It's going to be replaced. She, he hasn't told her yet that her religion, she didn't know what she was talking about, and they didn't know what they worshipped. He hadn't done that to her yet. He's about to do it. But do you understand the power, the weight, the value of verse 21 of John chapter 4 to a woman of Samaria? There isn't true worship in either place. Here's the verse. Hebrews 9 and verse 10. The first nine verses describe the way that Old Testament worship occurred as it's described in the Old Testament. The, the sacrifices and the blood and the bleeding and all that that I've mentioned already. Verse 10, which stood that Old Testament way of worshiping, which was 1,500 years old. There was 1,500 years from Moses, who started it, to Jesus, who ended it. 1,500 years, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers' washings and carnal ordinances. These are all the external ceremonial acts of worship of the Old Testament. The smoke, the blood, the animal skins, the colors, the gold, the water, the candlesticks, the showbread, meats and drinks and divers' ordinances, washings and carnal ordinances and holidays and Passovers and Feast of Booths, and all that stuff. The Old Testament just stood in stuff, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. That form of religion was imposed on the Old Testament, on the Old Testament people of God for 1,500 years. But then Jesus changed it by dying on the cross to put away all those sacrifices and all that washing because he had a spiritual sacrifice he made by his own body and blood and, it's, and the gift of his own Holy Spirit. That verse is so important. Jesus came into this world as a Jew under the law of Moses and he preached primarily to Jews under the law of Moses. He's called a minister of the circumcision. We read it earlier today in Romans 15 and verse 8. In Matthew 15 and verse 24, Jesus said about himself, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His ministry was primarily to Jews. Now Paul comes along and Paul's ministry is primarily to Gentiles. He starts out preaching to Jews but then God redirects him across the Mediterranean Sea to preach to Gentiles because things are changing. Jesus Christ died on the cross and broke down the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles. Right. Things are changing. So Paul is our apostle. The apostle Paul wrote the books of the New Testament for how churches should function. From Romans to Hebrews is written by Paul. Paul said, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. And I could turn you to verse after verse that is not necessary because I hope we already believe this. The apostle Paul changed things by preaching to Gentiles. And we are supposed to follow Paul. 
we follow Paul the way Paul followed Jesus because Paul showed Gentiles how to follow Jesus. I'm just going to give you 15 short, short phrases, and they are things that Paul and Jesus did differently. And there's not a contradiction. There's a reformation. Let me say that again. There's not a contradiction. There's a reformation, meaning that God is changing his way of worship from the Old Testament to the New Testament. They didn't worship Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. They killed animals. They worship, we worship Jesus Christ in the New Testament. I'm just going to mention 15 things that Jesus and Paul did differently. There's a whole document and sermon on the website called Jesus or Paul. We're Christians because we follow Jesus Christ, but we follow Jesus Christ the way Paul showed us and taught us how to follow Jesus Christ. Fifteen things that are different. Circumcision, baptism, Pharisees, Sabbath keeping, foot washing, divorce, church, Israel, Passover, new covenant, swearing, great commission, signs for believers, ministerial offices, and the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to go through those things, and I hope you understand why. That is a study by itself, and I told you where to go get it if you want to look into those things. But that verse that I just showed you in Hebrews 9.10, that that Old Testament stuff was put on them, imposed on them, who would really want it? Who would want to get up every day and kill more and more animals until Jesus came? And then it was through the apostles over 40 years, they ran side by side. Luke 16, 16, you're not very far away from it. You should be able to find it very easily. Here's how it is said there. Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Moses wrote the law. That's the 1,500 years of the Old Testament summarized by the words, the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets were until John. That's John the Baptist. That Old Testament system of religion was 1,500 years old, and it reached to John the Baptist. Since that time, since John the Baptist, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Now Jesus Christ is on earth, He's being preached, the Son of God, and men are being baptized to follow him. Luke 16, 16. So there we have, if you want to put another reference between John, beside John 4, 21, it would be Luke 16, 16, along with Hebrews 9, 10. I want to make this so plain. There's a change taking place. And do you know who heard it first on earth? The woman of Sychar. And she's getting a load of it right now. Here's a Jew the greatest Jew that ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the son of David, David himself, the Messiah of God, and he's telling a, a, an, a sinful woman of Samaria, this is what's about to happen. Brethren, whenever you think that God wouldn't reveal truth to us because he only reveals truth to, to Bible commentators that have such and such advanced degrees and so forth and so on, just remember that Jesus never had any use for anyone that went to seminary. His apostles were chosen from the Sea of Galilee. He took his apostles from the Sea of Galilee. When they opened their mouths, any educated listener knew they hadn't been educated. We read that in Acts chapter 4. 
God's able to reveal truth to us. If we will humbly follow him, if we will lovingly embrace him, if we will zealously obey him, he'll reveal his word to us. He revealed his word to her before she even did any of these things because she's about to do them. She's about to go into her city and say, is not this the Christ? When ye shall neither in this mountain. Now I've already explained in the, in the earlier sermon today that what is said in verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, that's the Mount Gerizim of the Samaritans, with their false worship aping the Jews' religion. I explained all that to you. I don't, wanna, I don't need to go over it again. It will take too much time because I'm running out of time. Nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. The Father's worship at Jerusalem was going to end because that Old Testament system was going to be taken away. The presence of God in the Old Testament system was where? The presence of God. It was in the Holy of Holies, the holiest of all. That special little compartment in the back of the temple where there was that little box called the Ark of the Covenant. You know, some of you may have seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it's about that little box. That little box represented the presence of God. It had two cherubim with their wings spread out on each end, facing inward. And right there, for symbolic purposes only, because the Old Testament was all symbolic. Right. It wasn't real. It was a shadow. It was a type. It was beggarly. It was ele- These are New Testament words. Right. It was elementary. It was rudimentary. It was base. It was carnal. It was sensual. Because it dealt with the senses. That was the presence of God. Well, what happened? You know, only a priest could go in there. The high priest of Israel could only go in there once a year. But what happened when Jesus died on the cross? That veil, though being 60 feet high and a full four inches thick and put in place by a large team of horses, was rent from top to bottom so that the way into the presence of God was wide open to anyone that comes in by Jesus Christ because he's the one that died on the cross at that moment and cried out, it is finished. And that veil, rip! The presence of God was wide open. The changes taking place were stupendous. They are so great that in Haggai chapter 2, they're called a shaking of the heavens and the earth. You know I love that passage because it says that in the shakings of the heaven and the earth, you know, we say the, uh, the whole world's been turned upside down. We'll, we'll make statements like that, and what we mean is there's a big change. Well, there's a big change religiously when these things took place. Verse 22, ye worship, ye know not what. She had a religion that was much closer than the Hindus and, and the Muslims and the Buddhists. She had a religion that was at least aping the religion of Jehovah. But look what Jesus said to her. Now, Jesus has been very gentle with her, and he doesn't say this in a way to offend her. She's, a, she's owned him as a prophet, and he has just laid some truth on her, woman. Woman, the truth isn't really being practiced on Mount Gerizim, and the truth isn't really being practiced on Mount Zion either. There's a new religion coming. And, and, and let me just say this about our two religions and the differences that you know that exist. You guys don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And I know that sounds rough when we try to read it and we try to think about him saying that to her, but she didn't get offended. Uh, are you, how many times are you guys going to get offended when you hear the word of God that steps on your toes? 
How many times am I going to get offended when the Word of God steps on my toes? Let's not be offended with the Word of God. Let's be offended that we would ever resist the Word of God. Let's be offended that we would ever think anything different than the Word of God. But let's never be offended by God revealing His thoughts to us. Ye worship, ye know not what. Jesus our Lord was not taught political correctness, and He didn't really practice it either. So He boldly and simply stated the plain truth. The Samaritans were religious idiots, aping Jerusalem without any authority from heaven to do so. Their temple, their priesthood, their rites, their sacrifices were nothing but nationalistic vanity. To identify themselves as being separate from the Jews, though they, their land was right in the middle of the Jews. So to give themselves some nationalistic pride, they had their own religion with their own mountain, with their own temple that once had been, but was now not there, and they worshipped the holy ground, the sacred spot. If, we were to, if I was to show you 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 20, the Samaritans were actually worshiping the devil. Right. Because the Bible tells us that worship that is not according to truth is worship of the devil. Right. Worship of the devil. Now the person doing it might be saved. But what they're doing is worshiping the devil. That's in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 20. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. You know, true religion is of the Jews, woman. Salvation is of the, of the Jews. It's the Jews that have the real religion. It's the Jews that know the true God. Let me show you Psalm 147, verse 19. I'm going to be there just quickly. I refer to this verse often, but for those of you that can turn quickly, I want you to just hear it and see it together. The last two verses of Psalm 147, this is speaking of God. He showeth his word unto Jacob. That's a reference for Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. That means the word of God, the written word of God, the rules of how to please God were given to Jacob and to Israel, meaning the same thing. God gave his revelation to this little nation called Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. Let that sink in. This little tiny nation is what he revealed himself to, and he did not reveal himself to any other nation. He hath not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, meaning his words, his rules, his commandments, his precepts, his statutes, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. Are you willing to praise the Lord after reading two sentences like that? Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Lord, we praise thee. We bless thee. We are so far off from Israel. We are so far away. Over here on the North American continent, we thank thee, Lord, that you have shown us anything and that you have brought the gospel to us Gentiles, tree stump worshipers, Stonehenge worshipers. We worshiped anything, Lord. We offered our children in sacrifice. Thank you. Thank you, Lord of glory. Verse 23, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Now he doesn't just say the hour cometh, notice the change, and now is. The transition is already taking place. The reformation has already started. Okay? For the hour cometh and now is. Jesus returned to his prophecy about a future change, but he declared here that it had already started. When the true worshipers, 
I love it when it says that. There are false worshipers in the world, and there are true worshipers, and God knows the difference. Let's be the true worshipers of the true and living God. Shall worship the Father. Jehovah of Moses. Who is the Father? Jehovah of Moses, the God of Israel, would be as clearly worshipped, but it would be very different. You know, the Old Testament did worship Jehovah. But that form of worship is being changed completely to the New Testament. The object is still the same, but it's now going to be in spirit, and it's now going to be in truth. It's not going to be in shadows and signs and types and symbols. It's going to be in truth. Verse 23, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father, and he is distinguishing by this but. The but that starts verse 23 tells us that the salvation and worship in the last part of verse 22, which was revealed most definitely to the Jews, was no longer valid. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers will not be worshiping in Jerusalem. He had said that earlier in verse 21, but they're going to be worshiping in spirit and in truth. In spirit condemns Jewish worship. In in that little expression, in spirit, it does not mean the Holy Spirit. It does not mean the Holy Spirit. It means in spirit, our spirit, our heart, our mind, our insides. It's going to be a spirit of understanding. It's going to be a religion of the understanding, a religion of the intellect. It's going to be a religion of concepts. It's going to be a religion of words and doctrines. It's going to be done by the internal apparatus of a man. That's what the word spirit means here. uh, This identifying mark of true worship changes the outward ceremony and rituals of the Jews' religion for internal worship. Old Testament worship occurred in a place. You had to go to a certain place wherever God set his name and set his worship, and it was Jerusalem. It, It had external ordinances of sensual perception. You saw, you heard, you smelled, you tasted. It was outward That is changing. It had an altar and miters and candlesticks and so forth and so on that I've already mentioned. The word describes the internal, spiritual, heart and mind worship of the New Testament protocol. For instance, music. Where's our piano? Where's our organ? Where's the praise band? Where's the bass guitar? Where's the lead guitar? Where's percussion supposed to sit? We don't have any instruments. Because Old Testament worship was sensual and had all the instruments. For these external audio nerves, what does the Bible say about us? The melody is in our heart. With grace in our hearts and melody in our hearts, we make a melody to the Lord, and we speak and teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We sing songs because the New Testament tells us to sing because our worship is one of intellect and understanding and communicating words. So we sang words, and we're thinking about those words, and our spirits are swelling up in us, and the, and the melody and the grace of God in our hearts is flowing out, and, and what's flowing in are words so that we're speaking and teaching and admonishing one another in our song service, which is so different from some professional organist 
getting himself on a seven-layered pipe organ and blasting your spleen. I remember the first time I hurt was in a situation like that at Bob Jones University. I wrote home to my parents and said, I can feel the Holy Ghost. No, I felt the massive chillers hanging above that drop ceiling and I felt that pipe organ. But that, those feelings are gone. So now it's words and concepts. Do you under, You have to understand... Because we're supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what that word spirit right there means. And do you know what that did to all the ceremonial worship in Jerusalem? Antiquated, outdated, and gone. And so in 70 AD, after, after those two covenants ran side by side for 40 years, Jesus sent Titus, level the place. No more altar, no showbread, no candlestick. Well, the candlestick was in Rome. You can see the arch to Titus. You can go, go, go to Google, arch to Titus the big arch that is still in Rome, to the dedication of Titus, who destroyed the Jews, and it shows the candlestick there being hauled through the city streets of Rome. And in truth, this identifying mark of true worship condemned the man-made lie of the Samaritans. Because worship would have to be in truth. And there was, that's why Jesus said, woman, the hour is coming, you, you don't know what you're worshiping, but your worship and the worship in Jerusalem is going to be overthrown for a worship in spirit and in truth, It's only going to be one way, and the one way is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't ape the religion on Mount Gerizim. It doesn't work. It's got to be through the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. Verse 24. God is not a corporal being. He does not have a body. He does not need a temple made with hands. He does not need anything that you can see, anything that you can hear, touch, or anything like that. He is a spirit. He's in this room. He's inside us that are his children. He's a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. He does, do you think that God, other than the fact that it was by their obedient hearts, that God is turned on by incense on earth? Do you think he likes a bleeding lamb burning on an altar? Have you smelled burning blood and flesh before? God is not turned on by those things. He doesn't even have a nose. And I'm not trying to be foolish. I want to get your attention to understand the weight of the lesson given to the woman of Samaria. Now, because he said do those things, and the Jews did those things in obedience to him, it was a sweet-smelling saver in his nostrils, though he has no nostrils. God is a spirit. And they that worship him don't worship him on Mount Gerizim, and they don't worship him on Mount Zion, and they don't worship him on Mount Moriah, and they don't worship him in Salt Lake City, and they don't worship him in Mecca. They worship him in this little trashy place in Greenville, South Carolina. And I mean that kindly and respectfully, but it's not very impressive. I've sat in here for hours staring at that stained glass window that we have trying to get some religious meaning out of it. And all I could think of was yellow. We have nothing. Because God is a spirit, and he wants to be worshipped spiritually. And so we come in here and we share with each other by all kinds of means. Jonah, we let a 14-year-old young man in our pulpit to read and present a psalm. We sing songs that are deep. They're not 7-Eleven music like is sung at New Spring, where you sing seven words 11 times. 
We sing deep songs that are conveying doctrinal truth. You say, why'd you just pick on them? Because we're supposed to worship in spirit and truth, and they don't know what truth is. That's why they have a praise band. There are no musical instruments in the New Testament because musical instruments are sensual, outwardly ceremonial, and part of the Old Testament. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We reject the shadows and the types for the reality we have the truth. The woman of Samaria was a closer religion than so many of the world's religions, but Jesus rejected it. Most religions are not even close. Brethren, let's leave. Let's quit with the two R's. Two R's. Each of us needs two R's. Repentance and revelation. Repentance is to tell God that we've been wrong. We've been living wrong, and we want to live His way, the right way. And that living the wrong way was foolish and cost us dearly. And we want to live the right way. That is true repentance. It is completely changing your life, changing your mind, changing your affections to turn from your way to God's way. And God has to give you the ability to do that. And he has given most of us the ability to do that. We want to do things his way, in private and in public, in church and at home. Repentance, the first R. The second R is, God, reveal yourself to us so that we can know what we ought to do in every part of our lives. And he has and he is. He's given us this divine library in our language and preserved it for 405 years since 1611 when it came into existence by the commandment of King James I of England and the sixth of Scotland who ordered its production. And this Bible has bore fruit throughout the earth. It has two testaments in it. One of the Old Testament, one of the New. We were born on this side of the cross. So we're on this side of the woman of Samaria. It has 66 books of all kinds of literary genre. Beautiful books. Some philosophical. Proverbs. Didactic doctrinal instruction. Prophecies of the future. Historical books. 1,189 chapters. 31,102 verses given to us by God in the way of revelation. This is our religion. Jesus laid it out to the woman of Samaria. He told her about the great reformation. We don't look to the reformation that took place in Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries. We look to the reformation that took place between 30 AD and 70 AD by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's shown us the truth. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And children, young people and old, that is why we have this church. We try to do it in spirit. No clanging piano. No blasting organ. No throbbing bass. Because it's in spirit. Because God's a spirit and we do it in truth. We want to make sure everything we do matches up with the Bible. The two R's. We need to repent, and we need to grab hold of God's revelation and never move away from either one. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me.